Well, hello again. My name is Doug Hooley, and I'm your host of the Called Out Cafe podcast. The current series is called The Biblical Worldview of the Spirit Realm. This is episode number nine. This time we're continuing our discussion regarding a bizarre story that's documented in the book of Genesis chapter 6, in which angels known as the sons of God left their natural station in heaven and came down to the earth, probably descending from Mount Hermon just to the north of Israel. There, fulfilling their lustful desires, they acted out in rebellion and engaged in sexual relations with human women, thereby creating an unnatural hybrid race of offspring known as the Nephilim. They were known to be literal giants, big, nasty, cannibalistic, half-human, half-fallen angel beings. So, let me ask you, what are you going to do with this story and other bizarre stories involving the spirit realm like it in the Bible? The reason why I've provided copious amounts of evidence of how this story was understood by biblical-era students of Scripture is to leave us with little doubt that they understood that this story really occurred in history. They did not understand it to be an allegory which makes some great spiritual point. Yet, many today believe that human beings have intellectually evolved to the point where it's not possible to take this story literally. It sounds so far-fetched to our enlightened scientific minds that to believe it would make us as crazy as the story sounds. If we decide in favor of not taking the story literally, we're left with few choices. If we don't believe it in light of the evidence that a literal face-value interpretation of the passage is true, and we want to continue to say that we have confidence in the historicity and believability of the Bible, we have to buy into a faulty alternative interpretation or interpretations of the passage that are contrary to what even the Apostle Peter and Jude believed, as well as most of other scholars of their day. If we want to say that this story is meant to be taken as a metaphor, then we're saying that we know better than the original audiences that the books of the Bible were written to and for, and how they would have understood the story. We can just ignore it and try to convince ourselves that we just can't understand the passage, despite how straightforward it reads. We can try to tell ourselves that the passage just doesn't matter because it doesn't have anything to do with one obtaining personal salvation. And that's all that really matters, right? I've had someone try to convince me of this. But if that were true, then we'd have to ignore most of the rest of the Bible. And there's so much more rich information contained in the Bible than how only one inherits eternal life. If we accept the literal interpretation of the storyline of the sons of God and the Nephilim, it'll impact how we interpret the entire rest of the Bible. We're acknowledging that there are heavenly beings that can be motivated by selfish, lustful desires, that can independently rebel and can transmutate into human form and wreak havoc on the earth. There are dark forces in the unseen realm that are not on the same page with the Most High God. This passage, if we believe it, can give clarity to understanding what Paul means when he says we war not against flesh and blood. Believing this story informs our worldview. What you do with this story, and others like it, 
is so important as to how you will understand Scripture. I spoke in the last episode about a few of the logic arguments that have been made against taking the story of Genesis 6 literally. But there's also a couple of common arguments that are made which utilize New Testament passages. So let's take a look at them. But first, a general caution for those who believe such arguments. We commonly see Old Testament scripture quoted in the New Testament by New Testament authors. The use of the Old Testament often helped give the New Testament its meaning. As I demonstrated in the last episode, the story of Genesis 6, where angels called the sons of God came down and had sex with the daughters of mortal men, was the well-accepted interpretation of that scripture during the time of Jesus and his apostles. It's that interpretation, contained in the Septuagint, that Jesus and his apostles would have drawn upon in their teaching. We have no reason to think otherwise. It's with that knowledge that we need to interpret the New Testament passage of Scripture, rather than superimposing our own interpretations of the New Testament on top of the Old Testament passages. Well, probably the most common New Testament argument against the sons of God in Genesis 6 being angelic beings is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. Didn't Jesus himself say that the angels neither marry nor are given in marriage? The argument goes that if that's true, the sons of God in Genesis 6 cannot be angels because they, quote, took wives, unquote, for themselves. Well, let's read the passage in question. This is Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 to 31. The same day Sadducees came to him, Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So too, the second, and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? for they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Well, the Sadducees describe a set of legal marriages according to Jewish laws and tradition. This was not a prostitute they were describing who had immorally slept with multiple men out of a legally recognized wedlock. So, the question was, since all seven men legally had her as a wife, whose wife will she be at the resurrection? It's a question regarding relationships, not sex. Jesus' answer was that angels do not engage in the kind of relationships that humans do. They do not get married. Relationships for the resurrected will not be like relationships now on the earth. According to Jesus, this hypothetical woman was off the hook for being married, linked to, committed to, bound to, or under obligation to any of her former husbands at the resurrection. That's all that Jesus was saying. 
To say that the literal interpretation of Genesis 6 suggests that angels came down and made some sort of commitment to have and to hold the involved women in a lifelong matrimony is absurd. The Hebrew word nesim, in the passage that's translated as wives, in some translations is also more accurately translated as women in others. The scripture literally says that the sons of God took all the women they chose. This is a sex act, not a marital act. It's likened to rape, not matrimony. When Vikings stormed English villages, they did not marry and pillage. They raped and pillaged. Spoiler alert, there's such a thing as sex that takes place outside of marriage. This act of taking all the women they chose was not an act of marriage or commitment like Jesus was being questioned about. It was an act of grossly self-indulgent rebellion. As Jesus said, angels do not marry. However, his answer does not mean that angels are androgynous or lack the necessary plumbing for sex when they manifest themselves as humans or that they do not have the capability of raping human women. Nor does it mean humans in their resurrected bodies will be eternally gender-neutral eunuchs. Jesus' statement in Matthew 22:30 addresses the relationship between formerly married people in eternity and not angelic sexual organs, or how they historically misused them in an act of disobedience and rebellion. Because the obedient angels who remain in heaven do not enter into committed marital relationships, as Jesus said, it does not mean that they do not have the ability to have sexual intercourse if they were to choose to rebel against God, leave their proper dwelling place in the heavens, and lay with human women. Interestingly, the book of Enoch confirms what Jesus said regarding marriage in the spirit realm. The following is what Enoch said that God told him to pass on to the offending sons of God. This is from the book of Enoch, chapter 15, verses 5 to 7. And for this reason, I give men wives, so that they might sow seeds in them, and so that children might be born by them, so that deeds might be done on the earth. But you formerly were spiritual, living an eternal, immortal life for all the generations of the world. For this reason, I did not arrange wives for you, because the dwelling of the spiritual ones is in heaven. As Jude one who is familiar with the book of Enoch put it, these angels failed to, quote, stay within their own position of authority and left their proper dwelling. The devil of misinterpretation is often in the details. Jesus said that the angels in heaven do not marry. The simple fact is that the angels that engaged in the atrocious acts recorded in Genesis 6 were not in heaven. They were kicked out of heaven. They had taken physical form and were on the earth when they committed the sex act. And according to the Apostle Peter and Jude, they're now bound up in hell and awaiting judgment. Those angels in heaven which remain in good and righteous standing with Yahweh do not get married, just as Jesus said. Genesis chapter 6 is a record of an angelic rebellion. What they did is not the norm. No other angels in heaven, so far as we know, outside of what's recorded in Genesis 6, have mated with human women, or each other for that matter. Jesus' answer is 100% correct. 
without meddling with the original and long-held interpretation of Genesis chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5 is another passage that some try to use to change the meaning of Genesis chapter 6, or the idea that angels are called the sons of God in the Old Testament. It says this, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? The argument goes that since this scripture says no angels have ever been called son by God, that the Bene Elohim written in Genesis 6 cannot be angels. They must be something or someone else. However, this is a backwards way to approach the Old Testament scripture. It held its meaning for 1,300 years before anyone really began to question or try to change it. The way to approach Scripture, especially this one, which Paul, the presumed author of Hebrews, is trying to make a case with the Hebrews who are familiar with Scripture, is to accept Old Testament writings according to what they say, and not to superimpose new meaning on them. Hebrews chapter 1 should be approached considering the fact that angels have indeed been referred to in several places in the Old Testament as sons of God. That should guide how the scripture concerning angels in the book of Hebrews is interpreted. We today should not come to some conclusion as to what the book of Hebrews passage says that conflicts with the long-held interpretation that was still accepted in Jesus' day. Paul was very aware that angels had been referred to as the sons of God. He trusted what the book of Psalms, Deuteronomy, Genesis, and Job said. Does this mean that Paul's case he's trying to make in Hebrews has been defeated? Absolutely not. Only the simplistic misinterpretation of what Paul wrote has been defeated. We should approach interpreting this scripture knowing that what Paul wrote was true, while also knowing that the Old Testament authors refer to angels as sons of God, and that's also true. But then, how could Hebrews 1.5 make sense? Easily. If we were to stop halfway through Hebrews 1, verse 5, the misinterpretation may have merit. If it said, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? And then stop there. The answer from the Hebrews who knew their Old Testament should have said, Well, what about the sons of God in Genesis 6? But they would have also likely said, Come on, Paul, don't you know your scripture? What about Deuteronomy 32, 8? Psalms 82, and the book of Job. All these Old Testament passages referring to sons of God would have stood as proof against what Paul wrote if we were to only read the first half of Hebrews 1, verse 5. There would be a conflict in Scripture. Either A, Paul's rhetorical question would be wrong, and the point he was trying to make would fail, or B, the translation and interpretation of Genesis 6 would be wrong. However, what I'm choosing is option C. This interpretation of Hebrews 1.5 is wrong. We need to read and consider what the entire verse says. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, and then going on, Today I have begotten you. That's the whole verse. Well, the word for being born or begotten is genao. Except for the first few times it's used for talking about spiritual rebirth in the New Testament, genao 
is always understood in the context of physical birth. Adam was not born, he was created. Similarly, angels were not born, they were created. What angel can say they have ever physically been born as a human being after Yahweh impregnated a woman? None. To confirm we are talking about a physical birth in relation to being a son, Paul stresses the point again when in verse 6 he goes on to say, And again, when he brings forth the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. What angel can say they have been brought into the world by God to be worshipped by all the other angels? Again, the answer is none. Further, Paul had already set the context for this verse by saying that Jesus is the radiance and the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus alone bore the family resemblance and possessed DNA passed on to him directly by his Father. What angel can make that claim? Again, none. Understanding this verse in the context of what Paul is trying to say and considering the use of the term Son of God in the Old Testament, only enhances Paul's message. He could have just as easily wrote, For to which of the angels, who the Scriptures have referred to as the sons of God, did ever say, You are my Son, created in my exact image. Today I have begotten you and brought you into the world. Paul is establishing the credentials of Jesus among the Hebrews. From early on, as fantastic created beings as angels are, Paul is saying that Jesus is something much greater. He's making it clear that Jesus is not an angel, as some may have thought the claim was. Like in John 3.16, Paul is saying that Jesus is the unique monogenes, Son of God, who was brought into this world through normal childbirth, yet is above all the angels. This understanding of Hebrews 1.5 takes nothing away from Paul's meaning and, in fact, strengthens his case, while not undermining the meaning of the Old Testament Scripture as it was understood in Paul's day. For me, there's much to take away on this Genesis 6 passage. There's little doubt how the passage was understood from the time of Moses through Jesus' day. If I buy into the view that they held, and I do, it informs me regarding the capabilities of at least some of the angels. I don't have any reason to believe that angels who have not been bound up like the original rebellious sons of God still possess those capabilities. It allows me to rationally consider possible explanations for physically unexplainable phenomena that we may be seeing today, you know, like UFOs, for example. It allows me to inch my way closer to a biblical worldview of the heavenly realm. Understanding this passage causes the Old Testament to come alive again with yet another incredible storyline that lasted for around 1,200 years and included both the physical and unseen realms. A storyline that demonstrates many things about God, including His lack of tolerance for rebellion and His ability to keep His word according to His own timetable and patient long-game methods. God is an incredible storyteller. He ultimately kills off the unholy line started by the rebellious sons of God with his shepherd boy champion who would be king. 
Don't think there wasn't a strong message being sent throughout the Unseen Realm when that happened. I keep this storyline, and all it means in mind is I read the Bible. Having a good idea of what this passage is talking about helps me to properly understand the New and Old Testament Scripture better. It's amazing how many times this storyline surfaces from the book of Genesis through the book of Chronicles. It gives me better understanding of what Peter and Jude wrote about. It adds a whole other dimension to what Jesus was doing when he said certain things and visited certain places. But again, I'm going to remind you that the takeaway about this story will be different for everyone. Some will just be upset and even angry as they feel their foundation of beliefs challenged. No amount of documentation will ever make a good enough case for some to believe that angelic beings could have ever produced such a nasty hybrid race of humans. Well, that's between them and God. If your view is something other than what I've talked about that I believe represents the truth, I sincerely pray that God opens my eyes to why what I just laid out is not true. I'm not on commission to get anyone to buy what I believe is firmly based on solid scriptural grounds. Then there will be others who have and will react to all of this by being elated about what the Bible reveals to us and gives us better understanding of both realms of God's creation and what's happened in them. Well, I know it's been a short one, (laughs) but that's it for this episode. Next time, I plan on talking about the other rebellions against God, which the inhabitants of the spirit realm have been a part of. Until then, may God bless you, and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries, and I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless. (laughs) 